So we're continuing in this uh, series, coming into uh, Light in the Darkness. Today we're going to talk about He Saves. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, Christmas time often is, is kind of a sentimental time for a lot of us. There's lots of memories and, ambition, uh, and uh, memories and emotions and things. And you have certain decorations in your home probably and stuff. And in my house when I was growing up, we had a nativity set that came up every year uh, around Christmas time. This was my mother's nativity set. And uh, I, I think it's... Fontanini is the name of the company that, that makes these, right? Okay, thank you. And, uh, and, and it came out every year, and, and this was Mother's Nativity set, and I was not allowed to touch it. <laughs> but it was special because it only came out at that time of the year. And so when my mother passed away in 2012, I asked for that out of her, uh, to come to us out of her estate. So uh, we have that now. And some of you know my wife is, is kind of a nativity and Noah's Ark freak. And we have lots of those around our house all the time. And because and, I, I kind of, as I've traveled, I've picked things up from different places. But uh, we have my mother's nativity and we have one that she, her mother made. And those two only come out uh, during Advent. She brings them out and, and sets them up. And uh, they carry a lot of rich emotion and memory for both of us. And, and she brings them out and, and gets them all arranged and everything. And I, I'm still not allowed to touch it. <laughs> you know, just the way it is. But, I, but as you come in and you, and you look at and you see these kind of things and, and we have these kind of warm, fuzzy feelings around all that, I, I, this morning I want to suggest to you that, that really there's something much, much, much more powerful going on than just a wonderful sentimental time of the year. So I want to pray with you. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning, we ask your presence to be with us. We ask your light to be in us, your life to be in us. Uh, open us up to what you want to say to us this morning. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we say, you know, he, he comes, he, he comes and he saves. And, and that name, Save Savior, actually gets attached to him uh, before he even arrives. Uh, his uncle, yeah, his uncle Zechariah, I mean, filled with the Holy, well, I don't know, second uncle, uncle Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be safe from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So, so early on, this, this, this title, Savior, is attached to him, even before he arrives uh, even before he is born. Thus he's shown the mercy promised to our ancestors. He's remembered his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our ancestors, Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. This, this saving presence is going to come and be in the midst of them. And in Matthew's gospel, which we read the other week, uh, you know, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, Joseph, in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then as you go over to that very uh, familiar narrative in Luke about the, the, the birth of Christ, you know, in that region there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, I always like to remind people, you know, we always have these little kind of cutesy little angels we have, little angel figures and things around. And when you read scripture, 
most of the time when angels shows up, people are terrified. I mean, they're, they're huge, majestic, majestic, powerful, heavenly beings that show up. And people's usual responses is terror or fear. So what you hear angels saying back to them is, do not be afraid. Always, over and over and over. For see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. Now I want you to hear, even in this, that, that title Savior is getting attached to Jesus, uh, even you know, right as he's born. But there's a hint there that he's not exactly what they expect, right? Because they're not being told to go to Jerusalem. They're not being told to go to one of the great palaces. They're not being told to go into the homes of the, the wealthy or the powerful. And they're, they're being sent to a stable to find the child wrapped in cloths lying in a feeding trough. So e- even in this announcement, you hear a little hint, this is going to be a little different from what people expected. Now that, that word, that name, Savior, uh, you know, that, that has very particular kinds of meanings. Uh, Jesus, the, the, the name that we use, uh, it, Yeshua or Yahashua, uh, literally means Yahweh saves. Yahweh being the, the uh, intimate, uh, the formal name of God. Uh, God saves, He saves. This is, this is Jesus' name. It appears 1,091 times in the New Testament, more than any other name. There's something really powerful about this concept that He saves, that God saves, that comes to happen in Jesus. Now, a lot of us at various times in our life, we've had somebody come up and ask us this question, right? Have you been saved? One of my favorite stories, one of our bishops flew on a flight one time and he was going to speak when he got to where he was going. So he's got his Bible open, he's got his notes open, and there's a young man sitting next to him. And the young man says, uh, I, I see you're reading a Bible there. Are you a Christian? And he goes, yes, yes, I am. And he says, well, well, when were you saved? And the bishop's answer is, I think it was like 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. I've always thought that was a great answer, uh, but that's my, you know, me, I think that's great. But have you been saved? I mean, we, we, you probably have some negative kind of imagery around this, this language uh, because it's, it's sometimes been used in ways that's kind of manipulative. But, but I want you to really think about what does it mean to say saved, to talk about save and savior. Uh, save, you know, sojo, yasha, uh, can also be translated as deliver, rescue, help. And in scripture, that phrase sometimes is applied to physical healing, forgiveness, rescue from enemies, rescue from disasters, deliverance from suffering, uh, internal transformation upon confessing Christ, which tends to be about the only way we think of it, and and God's deliverance at the last day, at the end of the ages. All of those are are ways in which that word gets used and talks about being saved. Uh, And and it appears in various kinds of, uh, you know, time frames, right? Saved, saved, having been saved, being saved, will be saved. All of those come together. Uh, so so it, it's not just as simple a term as sometimes what we think. What all of it implies is something that, that there is a time at some point in time when we need to be saved or we need to be delivered or we need to be rescued. And for Paul, uh, when he talks about uh, sin, he's going to use the word hamartia, uh, this is the anglicized version of it, uh, which literally means, it's an archery term, it means to miss the mark, it means your aim is off. Instead of aiming at the bullseye, somehow or another you've gotten distracted or you've wandered and you're aiming at something other than what you should be aiming at. And I love the, the line out of that hymn, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. My, uh, 
my sheep ranchers out in the hill country when I was out there would tell me that you know when you take sheep out into a large pasture and they start to eat, they, they just follow the grass. Now they're only safe, you know, I mean they, they're safety when they're together as a flock, but what will happen is they put their head down and they start to eat and they just follow the grass and they don't really keep track of where they are. So if you're in a large pasture by the end of the day, you know, you have the flock here and then you've got a couple over there that wandered off and you got one over there and you got one way the heck out there. You know, they've just wandered, they just follow the grass, they wandered off away from safety without realizing it. And the shepherd's job is to bring them back into the flock where it's safe. This prone to wander image for me is really powerful because I don't know about you, but that seems to be what we do a lot, isn't it? We, we take our eyes off the shepherd and then we wander. If you go back into Genesis, uh, the kind of the, the start of all this, so in Genesis 3, uh, there Adam and Eve are in the garden and the serpent was there and the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. And then the serpent goes, did God really say you would die? And this conversation goes on until Eve and Adam begin to listen to the serpent instead of listening to God. Prone, prone to wander. Prone to wander. I mean, there, there is this presence in the world that, that takes advantage of that with us. Uh, in Scripture, uh, he has some names, you know, devil, Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub. Uh, his Old Testament name literally means the adversary, uh, father of lies, ruler of this world, tempter, and my favorite, Old Scratch. Yeah. Out there saying, hey, hey, look over here. Hey, hey, listen to this. Hey, 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 hey. Constant pulling us off. Years ago, uh, one of the ladies in one of my church said, whenever God's preparing to do something great, the adversary will rise in opposition. And at the time I thought, but you know, the longer I've lived, the more I find it's true. You know, God stirs up something and we come together and we begin to to, to move with God to do something great. And then the next thing you know, you're sitting in a meeting and all these people get mad at each other and they're yelling and hollering and people storming out the doors and you're standing there going, what just happened? We wandered. We wander. Prone to wander, Lord. Prone to wander. And we've been doing it a long time. You know, I, one of the things I love about King David is, is the honesty with which he deals with his own wandering, his own sin. Uh, and after the whole episode with Bathsheba, you, know, you have this amazing song, uh, passage where he's uh, writing the song to God, and you know, have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I love the honesty of that. And then he pleads with God for healing, right? Create me a clean heart, O God. Put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. I mean, he admits where he's wandered, and then he throws himself into God's arms. And so often it seems to me that, you know, we're, we're really not sure we want to actually do that. You know, we just, we just don't want to hurt so much. 
It's kind of like, you know, we, we've got a broken bone, and instead of going and, and getting it taken care of, we'd rather just take some more Vicodin and just let the bone remain broken. But David goes back to God and says, God, here I am. Here I am. And only you can heal up what's wrong with me. And he just throws himself on God's mercy. Paul writes the best description I know of of what it means to be sinful in the seventh chapter of Romans. I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, I, I, I know that none of you have ever had this kind of experience. You know, I, you've never been there where, you know, you, you're, you know there's something, and, and you know if you say it, it's going to be so hurtful, and you know you shouldn't say it, and the words are coming out of your mouth, right? Or you know if you take certain actions, you know you're going to rupture a relationship, you're going to irreparably harm someone, and, and you know that, and yet you find yourself doing that. And you're going, what is wrong with me? Wretched man that I am, who's going to rescue me? Right? It's a great description of sin. I, I, I love the honesty with which the recovery community has kind of embraced this and, and just owns up to it, right? We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. I mean, just, just the plain honesty. We're, we're, we're powerless over this. It's got control of us. Now, I know you're sitting there, some of you are saying, well, you know, I don't have a problem with alcohol. Yeah. Okay. We admitted we were powerless over our, our, our use of drugs. We admitted we were powerless over our, our use of sex and pornography. We admitted we were powerless over our gambling. We admitted we were powerless over our acquisition of, acquisition of wealth and goods. We admitted we were powerless over our, our drive to find meaning in our work. We admitted we were powerless over our seeking of prestige in other people's eyes. Put in what you want. It's all true. And, and at the core, you know, there's that wonderful, that wonderful last one, you know, when, when uh, we get to the point of saying, you know, we, we, we admitted we were powerless over ourselves, right? And our culture of, you know, hey, look out for number one, take care of number one, right? Except number one's not God, it's me. I admitted I was powerless over me, over me. And my life had become unmanageable. Brutally honest. Brutally honest. And only God can restore us to sanity. So Paul comes back at the end of that seventh chapter, right? And, ah, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with my mind I'm a slave of the law of God, but with my flesh I'm a slave of the law of the sin. But thanks be to God, I, I, I know who my rescuer is. 
Jesus comes as Savior, steps into our lives to pour out forgiveness of sins. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The Hebrews believed that, that only God could forgive sins. So every time Jesus says these things, you need to hear what he's proclaiming. That he has the authority of God because he is God. And even back into Isaiah's looking toward the future, you find this prophecy. Surely he's borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, prone to wander, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then you hear this forgiveness of sins repeated over and over, right? Peter said to them, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He has rescued us from the power of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 1 John 1, right? If we confess our sins, He who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The, the first step of Savior is, is forgiveness. To throw ourselves in God's arm, create me a clean heart, because we know, we know that God forgives. We're saved from despair. He comes to save us from despair in the midst of the hardship and the struggle of the world. Therefore, since we're justified by faith, with, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, we also boast in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. And you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. To understand that even when life is it's so difficult and so hard and it feels like everything's coming apart at the seams that we are still God's people that God has not abandoned us and that even in that place God's love can be poured out upon us and shine into the suffering we go through that there's meaning even in our suffering because God is with us God is with us and God sustains us with endurance that brings hope even in the midst of that. We're saved in love. For God so loved the world, that, that's you and me, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that everyone who believes in Him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves His love for us 
and that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Amen comes in love to be in the midst of us. It's, it gets captured in some of our, our hymns, right? Uh, love came down at Christmas, love all lovely, love divine. And then at the end of uh, Bleak Midwinter, yet yeah, what I can I give him, give my heart. And he comes and he saves us in love. If you ever reach that place where you feel like you are not loved in this world, that is a deep, dark pit to be in. When you reach the place that you feel like your parents don't love you and your siblings don't love you, your friends don't love you, the people you work with don't love you, no one cares about you, no one loves you, even God doesn't love you, it's a short step from that to be, being of the belief that there's something fundamentally wrong with me that makes me unlovable. And when you begin to believe that the reason you're not loved is that you're unlovable, you begin to act in ways that make that real to the people around you. And that only confirms what your experience is, that you're not loved. And then you begin not even to believe you can love yourself. And when you hit that point, you begin to behave in ways that are self-destructive. And for all of us who have been in that deep, dark pit, Jesus is born to step into that and bring light of that in love. Because God so loved you, God so loved me, that he came. And once you know you're loved, you can bear almost anything. We're saved in love. And, and finally, we're saved from death. Right? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection, I am the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And then this wonderful passage out of 1 Corinthians 15, this perishable body must put on imperishability, this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, and then you hear that echoed. You hear that echoed over again. 
and the end of the days. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and see, I'm alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. There is this salvation over death, this reality in the resurrection, that that overarching fear of death that threatens to destroy and, and tear apart everything that we are is suddenly gone. Because in Jesus Christ and his offering for us, God has overcome death. I mean, when we gather around these nativities and we sing these wonderful songs and we, we have these sentimental moments, we, we sometimes forget the power of this, that, that in the birth of Christ, the Savior is coming into the midst of our world to save us from sin, to save us from, from, from despair, to save us from hopelessness, hopelessness, to save us from darkness, to, to come in love and remind us that we are cherished children of God, to save us from death itself. That God chooses to be born into the midst of our darkness so that we might know our salvation. You know, when, when, when my kids were little, Sometimes when we want to get their attention, we get their face, and then they learn that trick, right? Once they learn that, you know, directing the face. When, when they want, want my attention, they'd reach up and grab my face, right? Like if I was distracted with doing something, they were trying to tell me something, and I'd be messing around with stuff. They'd reach up, and they'd take your face, and they'd pull it over, and they Dad, pay attention, right? I don't know if yours did that, but mine did that. They, they learned. That was how they could get me from being distracted all this. And, 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 and in... And in birth of Christ. That's exactly what God is doing. Prone to wander. We're wandering all over the place, going here and going there. And Jesus comes in this birth, in this manger, and reaches up his hands and takes our face. He says, here, look here. She will bear a son. You're naming Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks that you, you come into the midst of all that we walk through. In the midst of all the places we despair, we lose hope. We begin to think we aren't valued. You come into all the places we've wandered off into when our eyes are, are not on the shepherd. And in the birth of Christ, you call us back again and again. So hear us as we come and give you thanks for the gift of your love and your mercy and your forgiveness and your grace and your hope and your life and your light that you pour out upon us in the birth of Jesus. We give you thanks in his name. Amen.